The Vision app is the best place to find a growing range of on-demand audio for the whole family. Your kids or grandkids can listen to the popular radio drama Adventures in Odyssey and two-minute Bible stories called Quick Sticks whenever it suits you. Whether you're in the car for a few minutes or for a longer trip, these two programs will keep the kids entertained. New episodes are added every weekday in the free Vision Christian Media app. If you don't already have the app on your smartphone or tablet, download it now from vision.org.au slash app. Vision.org.au slash app. Vision. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Elizabeth Kendall is back with us today, religious liberty analyst and advocate. She's an adjunct research fellow at the Arthur Jeffrey Center for the Study of Islam at the Melbourne School of Theology, and she serves as the Director of Advocacy at Christian Faith and Freedom in Canberra. A special welcome along to you, Elizabeth Kendall. And thanks for having me, Neil. And Elizabeth, uh, just wonderful to be sitting face to face with you. Uh, I've come to your state, <laughs> and here we are in Melbourne, and a wonderful opportunity to get your insight into what is a developing issue so significant, so serious that we cannot really ever uh, avoid the idea of uh, looking very deeply into this because it's got ramifications uh, not only for this nation of Indonesia but for nations all around the world and who knows one day down the track even here in Australia. You've been following this along and with the elections next year things have changed and things are heating up. Yes, I think people haven't realised just uh, how serious it was going to be that the Islamists actually got their way in this AHOC trial. So yes, AHOC uh, challenged the Islamists who were going around telling everybody, you cannot vote for a Christian. The Quran says you cannot vote for a Christian. You cannot take Jews or Christians as your leaders. And that really scared the people. AHOC challenged their interpretation on that and they accused him of blasphemy. And he was convicted. Now, it was ridiculous. Uh, he had not blasphemed. Uh, and uh, it was really viewed as uh, a case to appease the Islamists, to end the demonstrations, to get everyone to quieten down, and no judge was going to let him off. And the fact is no one's been let off a blasphemy uh, trial in the last uh, 10, 15 years. So, you know, they imprisoned Ahok and everyone thinks that it'll all quieten down and go away. But no, when you appease Islamists, they don't go away. They raise the stakes. They've won ground and they raise the stakes. And I think what we're living in now is really the post-Ahok era. People need to realize that something changed when they found Ahok guilty and they let the Islamists push him out of the race. We are in a new era now. And uh, it's going to have a big impact on the next elections. And so as we look to our neighbours in the north, the nation of Indonesia, a very high population, Mm -hmm. a very powerful nation, the most populous Muslim nation on the face of the earth, it would appear that there is a slide that is happening there towards uh, Islamic rule. Now... How do you see what is happening in Indonesia? Because clearly there are going to be all sorts of things that people will look at at different dimensions and uh, things to do with their constitution and that sort of thing. But uh, things look pretty, pretty serious right now. Yes, well, this is part of the global trend of the radicalization of Islam. So from 1979, when uh, there was uh, an Islamic revolution in Iran and then an attempted Islamic revolution in Saudi Arabia, 
which failed but empowered the clerics. And the clerics were able to, from that point, uh, get money to fund the radicalization of Islam all around the world. And they've been doing this for 35 years now. So we're a long way behind the game. So for 35 years, the Wahhabi clerics in Saudi Arabia have been funding the radicalization or what I call the Wahhabization of Sunni Islam all over the world. And so you start to see... Uh, the hijabs, which had been thrown away, you know, and now have all come back to Nairobi and Jakarta and other places, Cairo, which was quite secular in the 1960s. Uh, Islam is back and, um, and it's, it's serious and people haven't realized the degree to which Islam is coming back. It's coming back through the mosques. Uh, Muslims are being radicalized through the mosques. And so it's part of that trend. But, you know, in Indonesia, most people do not want to live under Sharia law. Um, they have, um, they have a strong culture that is actually quite dynamic and they love dance. They love their culture and, um, they don't really want this Sharia. There's a quite a tension and the Islamic parties never do well politically. They never get the votes. They're never going to win an election. But they've worked out that they don't need to win an election. And we, sh- we know this in Australia, probably better than anyone, that he who holds the balance of power is the strongest person. It can be even just one person in the Senate, you know, the crossbenchers. They control everything. And the Islamists have realized that they can paralyze Jakarta and that they hold the balance of power that rulers cannot rule without their support. They've learned that, and they're using it. They're wielding it with great uh, effect. Now, with an election that is now getting so close for Indonesia, uh, candidates have been nominated, and not a Christian in sight. Uh, is that the same as the thought that Islamists may be about to seize this level of control? Oh, absolutely. I would say that they have done so already. My recent prayer bulletin, last week's prayer bulletin was on Indonesia and this issue of uh, the upcoming elections. So the elections will be in April and on the 10th of August, so just the week, uh, a week ago, two weeks ago, uh, the candidates put forward their running partners who they would, would run with. And the two leading contenders are Joko Widodo, the incumbent, who used to be the governor of Jakarta and worked alongside Ahok, who's a Christian. He's a very moderate man, uh, very secular, very tolerant, works with the minorities well. And uh, he was working with Ahok, and then he became the president. So he's running again, and he's running against Prabowo Subianto, who was the head of special forces and... Uh, has a lot of questions against his name as to gross human rights abuses. Now, the thing that's really interesting is that Joko Widodo has realized that he can be attacked like Ahok was attacked. He has worked with Christians. (laughs) He has had uh, minorities as his friends. Uh, He has been the subject of all sorts of false news. People have accused him of being, you know, a secret communist and things like that. So he's been the victim of false news, uh, the victim of, of slander, and he's thought, well, if I'm not careful, I could end up like AHOC. And it's not just Jocko Wadodo that's concerned. His coalition partners are concerned. They're beginning to, they were beginning to look at his, 
his tolerance and his uh, support for the minorities as this might be a problem for his electability. Uh, this could leave him vulnerable. So he had actually chosen as his running mate the chief, a former chief justice by the name of uh, Mohammed Mahfoud. Now, I can remember writing on him way back in 2008 because Mohammed Mahfoud, when he was the chief justice of the Constitutional Court, he wanted to get rid of all the Sharia bylaws that were hurting the religious minorities. And he fought for that. He didn't manage to get it through, I don't think, but he fought for it. And at the, he was going to be Jocko Wododo's running mate. And at the 11th hour, literally at the 11th hour, there was a change and Jocko Wododo announced as his running mate, cleric um, uh, Maruf Amin, a 70-year-old cleric, Islamic cleric, probably one of the most influential clerics in all of Indonesia, a cleric who's been behind uh, the push on the blasphemy laws, uh, moves to Islamize uh, Isla- values of Indonesia. In fact, Maruf Amin, as the head of the uh, Indonesian uh, Ulama uh, Council, signed the fatwa that condemned Ahok. So this is big. This is really big. And so you might not imagine that Joko Widodo chose this running mate because he was a personal friend and personally aligned with his values because they appear to be in a contradiction to what the Joko Widodo values might be. And so you can see that there is some sort of alignment because of a political intimidation. Is this the way the, that word intimidation, perhaps is that a too strong a word or is, or is this likely to be what's happened? I think that's exactly what's happened. I think he is very, very aware, aware that uh, this, this sword is essentially hanging over his head. It's a threat. You know, uh, we can get rid of you very, very easily. We just have to accuse you. We just have to find a little slip. You know, you're a, you're a friend of infidels. You're going to weaken Islam in Indonesia. And uh, he knows it's a threat that's hanging over his head. His coalition partners knows it's a threat that's hanging over his head. So he's, he's taken up this cleric as a shield. In fact, the evidence is that this cleric himself told Jocko Widodo that if they don't um, uh, get someone from uh, the, his Islamic uh, movement or pr- even him himself, uh, Amin himself, then they would say goodbye. We would not be supporting you. We don't think you're enough of a good Muslim. We'll, we'll abandon you. So it's almost like blackmail as far as I'm concerned. Elizabeth, I know that your last prayer bulletin when you issued this was entitled The Sword of Weaponized Islam Revealed. Uh, that's a very confronting title because uh, sword uh, means violence. Mm. And when we talk about being weaponized, uh, we're talking about a political weaponization here. Uh, when you use that sort of terminology, the sword of weaponized Islam revealed, uh, this is just another illustration of the way that Islam forces its way into controlling situations. Oh, absolutely. They've, um, they've realized the level of fear that the, uh, that the imprisonment, I mean, of Ahok has, has produced. I mean, this is a, a law-abiding man, one of the most popular politicians ever to hold office in Jakarta. He was on track to uh, take the governorship 
Um, he greatly loved, uh, really, really popular. In fact, when Jokowi, when Joko Widodo and Ahok were running Jakarta together, they were known as, uh, Joko Hawk. And <laughs> they put the two names together. And you could see these, um, there were posters. I, I thought they were hilarious. Posters of, um, Jocko Wadodo and Ahok dressed up like the men in black. And they'd come in and they were killing corruption in Jakarta. Incredibly popular. But, um, this man who's never committed a crime is in jail for two years. So the, I, uh, like a shroud of fear has now been cast across Every politician who realizes they might get on the wrong side of the Islamic radicals. And if they do that, even though these Islamic radicals are a minority, they can bring them down. They can just bring them down. I want to invite listeners to join our conversation. 1-800-316-316. You might have your own thoughts on how you would pray for a nation like Indonesia if it is sliding under Islam control uh, with an election on in April next year and as you've been hearing Elizabeth Kendall share these things I wonder what your thoughts might be and how you might pray 1-800-316-316 you're welcome to join our conversation we're only a few minutes out from Vision National News uh, this sort of vulnerability uh, that uh, the, uh, the leaders feel uh, when there is a, uh, a an intimidation and a pressure uh, that comes is it possible that could ever happen here in Australia, Elizabeth Kendall? Oh, I think to a degree, yes, it is. And I think we've already seen it possibly, although I don't have tight figures, even in places like London. I think people need to realise how seriously Muslims, especially fundamentalist Muslims, will take a verse like uh, Surah 551, do not take Jews and Christians as your leaders. Now, London has a Muslim Lord Mayor, People often say, oh, that just shows how tolerant the Londoners are. Well, it might just show how many Muslim voters there are in London too because you can guarantee that uh, while the non-Muslims would have looked at all the, all the policies and chosen who they wanted to represent them, I guarantee you that the Muslims would have voted for a Muslim. They, if there was a Muslim standing, then the Muslims would vote for the Muslim because the Quran tells them to. And I think we would have a very similar thing here uh, in Australia, even at the local government level now. Um, in local elections, council elections, I think Muslims would be told if there is a Muslim standing, then Muslims need to vote for the Muslim. The Quran tells them that they must in Surah 551. Of course, uh, there are those uh, legal purists who'll say, aren't we protected by our constitutional freedoms? Uh, does a constitution pro protect a nation when it comes to these sorts of uprisings? Uh, look, I think, I think if we had, were having council elections and there was a Muslim standing in a particular council, uh, Muslims would say that you have to vote for a Muslim. That would be the, that would be the word going out from the mosques, most mosques, not necessarily all mosques, but from many mosques. And uh, they would say it's our religious freedom to follow the Quran. And I think we would just expect that that's what would happen. And there's just a chipping away, yeah. an incrementalism, a little bit here, a little bit there. And before you know it, you've got a real position of power. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I remember reading some years ago in, uh, I think it was Brussels, 
the city council had finally been tipped. So there were nine councillors, of whom five were Muslims. So they'd finally tipped the balance, and what was happening was the names of the holidays were being changed. Uh, so you had, had you had a winter break instead of a Christmas break. You had things like that. You know, they were changing. Uh, Christmas wasn't even going to be celebrated in the traditional fashion. So they weren't going to bring the big Christmas tree into the center square. They were going to have a lights festival. So everything changes. Um, Muslims have been doing politics for a long time. Islam is a political religion. It's about power. It's about political power. They know how to play this game. Uh, somebody in the last 24 hours mentioned to me, they said uh, Islam is a little bit like uh, uh, its politics with a pause for prayer. And uh, <laughs> we good. might talk some more about that sort of thing after Vision National News. You might remember back in 2016 in the nation of Indonesia, hardline Islamists held mass demonstrations in an effort to prevent a popular Christian politician from being elected the governor of Jakarta. As you might remember, he was known as Ahok, and he challenged the interpretation of a verse in the Quran warning Muslims against voting for a Christian. The verse reads, Do not take Jews and Christians as your leaders. And when Ahok spoke out about that verse, he was accused of blasphemy. A fatwa was issued and mass rallies led to a trial, and in 2017 he was sentenced to two years in prison. So a focus on Indonesia today, because Indonesia is facing a presidential election in April next year. Some discussion today about what to expect in the post-Ahok era, where Islam flexes its muscles and laws are used as political weapons. Our special guest is Elizabeth Kendall, religious liberty analyst and advocate. She's an adjunct research fellow at the Arthur Jeffrey Centre for the Study of Islam at the Melbourne School of Theology, and she serves as the Director of Advocacy at Christian Faith and Freedom in Canberra. Elizabeth, before we get any more development on our conversation, because I want to ask you about the church in Indonesia and how they are faring under what is likely to be a seizing of control by the Islamists. But let's take some calls. Zoran is on the line from Redcliffe in Queensland. Hello, Zoran. Welcome along. Good morning, Elizabeth. Good morning, Neil. Now, in that verse, quoting what he um, what he said, Adjok said, it says about it actually says if you know the Quran and you know Islam, they go straight to God. So, what that verse actually says, it says God is our leader, not Christians or Jews. It says God is our leader, and as I said before, where we're the same in Australia, we're the same in all countries. So, everybody, and it even says in the Bible that we all have a supplication for God. That means that we all have a right to say so. So I know people in the Quran. I've worked with them and everything. And if you actually knew what goes on, you probably wouldn't even bother mentioning the, the, any, any of it. But what the problem is, is their prayer. When they pray, they think they pray every day that it's going to do something because they don't go to Jesus. They go straight to God. So they need to believe in their prayer believe in themselves. Zoran, interesting thoughts that you're having here. And uh, let's get a little clarification on some things there. When you say going straight to God, we're talking about uh, different gods. Uh, The Christian God that we worship is different to the Allah God that is worshipped by 
those who are under Islam. But Elizabeth Kendall, as I bring you into, and you can hear some of those thoughts that Zoran is bringing. What are your thoughts on on the sorts of things he's he's talking about? I mean, because this is the, this is the case, isn't it? We're Christians, and we would like to think that people will honour God first, uh, and even resist when a government takes takes us off on a on a tangent and uh, isn't that just the same thing that those islamists are trying to do by saying uh, honor allah uh, rather than obey the the government what are your thoughts for zoran well i can i can sort of see what he's saying to a certain extent i think um the big difference is that like with islam there is absolutely no separation of church and state so islam is political um uh, political at its core, it has political aims, and uh, there is no doubt that um, that Muslims take this verse, Surah five fifty one, do not take Jews and Christians as your leaders. They take it politically, and uh, it w- in in Indonesia it was being used politically. They were being told that the elections are coming for the governorship of Jakarta. Do not take a Christian as your leader. Uh, they, so the clerics were interpreting it politically. Um, in uh, the early days of Islam, uh, in Sunni Islam especially, the uh, leader was always a strong man, uh, someone who would protect Islam. That was his role. Uh, so you, obviously you couldn't have a Jew or a Christian in that role. Um, it, so it's very, it's a political role. There's no doubt about that. I think uh, the Christian position is quite different. Uh, with in Christianity, you've got a uh, separation of church and state. Uh, we have uh, there are uh, there is a mandate for Christians. There is a mandate for the church, and there is a mandate for government. As, and, and while there is overlap, and Christians can enter government, and government and, and the church talks to each other, uh, it's not the same. It's a different, quite a different situation. And there's, but there's no doubt that in this situation in Indonesia, they were referring to something absolutely political. They were talking about the upcoming elections, and it's now something that is going to loom over every election. There is no doubt about that. Thank you so much to Zoran from Redcliffe for your call. 1-800-316-316 if you'd like to join in our conversation today. Let's take another call. Robin is in Mount Morgan. Hello, Robin. Welcome along. Yes, hi. Um, I was, um, years ago, I was standing next to a, an Indonesian lady. We were at a um, public uh, complaint session. I think it was on the Gold Coast. Um, Daniel Scott was speaking about, oh, this, what was, um, the complaints were against the Muslims wanting to build a mosque right next to a Christian school in um, the Gold Coast. And there was uh, an invitation to the public, um, and it was at a public place, a hall. Um, you know, Daniel Scott was speaking about the dangers and the agenda of Islam worldwide. And uh, this Indian, Indonesian lady next to me, um, she was really upset. I don't know whether she was a Christian or a Muslim or what, but she said, I left Indonesia because of them, and now they're coming here. So um, she okay. was quite upset. Uh, a significant point you're making there, Robin. Uh, a, a response, though, from Elizabeth Kendall. Yeah, I've seen a couple of cases exactly like that. I know that there was a case in uh, rural Victoria where uh, Muslims brought, bought a large plot of land, uh, an acreage, right next door to a little old historic church that had been purchased by the Assyrian community. So these are Christian 
Iraqi refugees who had settled in rural Victoria and they had purchased this little um, unused, uh, long-dead a historic little church, probably a little weatherboard uh, place, you know. And the Muslims had purchased this massive acreage right beside it and were looking for permission to build a mosque right next door to where the Assyrian Christians were meeting in the church. And they were distraught. They were absolutely distraught. And, of course, as soon as it came up uh, in uh, like council business, they were uh, told that they were bigots, that they were Islamophobic, and that this was multicultural Australia, and, of course, the mosque would go ahead. I saw a similar thing in, um, in, in Melbourne. Uh, I, I stood very strongly against what's known as the Monash Mosque when Monash University... Um, uh, gave permission for Sunni Muslims to use Monash, a Monash property as a mosque. So they were using a house that belonged to Monash University, it was on the edge of the campus. They were using it as a mosque and they applied to have the little old weatherboard house bulldozed and to build a nice modern mosque on Monash land. And I stood against it and I said, you know, this is you know, this is not right. <laughs> and it was pretty much a lone voice. But when, when it came to the vote in the Monash City Council, uh, uh, I stood and I spoke and, and, uh, was threatened with a vilification suit from the Monash City, uh, councillor for suggesting that it could be problematic. And when it went to the vote and it was passed, one, uh, a man stood up and he was weeping. And he was literally distraught and uh, he was saying, this is no good, this is no good. And his wife had to almost drag him out of the council meeting. And I went out and I spoke to them and she said, um, you know, we come from Egypt, we're Copts from Egypt. We left Egypt to protect our three daughters from this and we're just two doors down from this mosque. And now we're going to have the call to prayer, two doors from our house. We're going to have Muslim men going past our Coptic daughters and, and we are afraid. And no one understands what this means. No one understands what it means. So I've seen this before. Um, and, and Daniel Scott is, you know, not just one of Australia's great experts and national treasures, but, you know, he's one of the world's leading experts in this. And he really should be listened to with, with for Muslims to plant a mosque is to stake a claim on territory and to make a political statement. And it's actually very serious. It's a very serious thing. Uh, thank you so much to Robin from Mount Morgan for your call. And just before we take another call, uh, just a quick response, because when people get upset about these things and they're concerned that you are being racist, uh, religions have lots of people from lots of races associated with them. But this confusion between race and religion, uh, this doesn't seem to... Uh, worry people on the left, they'll, they'll call the race card even when you're talking about a religious argument. Yeah, that's right. People need to realize that you can be, you can be Arab and you can be Christian. And if you've, if you've fled Islam, uh, it can be really disconcerting to have, is, to see it following you to, to where you've gone. And, um, it's always been interesting for me when I've gone to meetings for, uh, Christian, uh, political groups like, um, I went to a number when Australian Christians was, uh, active in Victoria. I've been to a number for, um, you know, uh, different, different Christian political groups. At least half the people in the room, 
um, are non-Anglos. They have actually fled Islam or they've fled places of persecution. They're Eritreans, they're Chinese, they're Nigerian, they're Assyrian, they're Arab. And they're saying, we're really concerned about what's happening and the fact that people don't seem to understand what Islam is going to bring to this country. We need to make sure that that Muslims in Australia uh, really do accept Australian values, really do accept religious freedom and respect it and uh and must honour it. They must honour our democracy. They must honour religious freedom. Otherwise, uh, we're going to suffer all over again. Let's take another call. Mark is on the line from Mackay in Queensland. Hello, Mark. Welcome along. Good morning, Neil, and good morning, uh, Elizabeth. Uh, thank morning. you very much for the opportunity here. What are your thoughts, Mark? I, I'm just absolutely bewildered by the lack of interest in Christians generally in this topic. Um, I mean, we, the history of freedom of every nation in the world's history that have got that freedom only got it from the Bible. There's no other, there's no other freedoms come from any other place. And yet we've, we've totally disregarded uh, where that has come from and we're not, we're not protecting it. We're not guarding it, which was the, the requirement of us to do so. But when we look at that history uh, of both uh, positions, where the, a question I'm not hearing asked that if asked of, of a Christian, is it your goal to emulate your prophet, which is the comes of Jesus, or it comes of the Jew from the case of Moses, or both, um, they have to say yes. That question is not being asked of those of, of Islam. And when it comes to emulating their prophet, if they're going to be honest and they say yes, it's what the history is of the prophet of Islam. And, you know, there was that many where all the issue was with ISIS was on the front pages all the time going on. There were a, quite a number of, of uh, ex-Muslim women that came forward and said, having grown up under Islam, they said ISIS is perfect Islam. And there's so many of the leaders throughout the world of Islam have come forward and just said, you know, this thing of the West thinking there's two Islams is an absolute nonsense. There is only one Islam. And it has a history of only conquest. And, you know, it's just bewildering the, the lack of interest of Christians in dealing with, uh, in, in, in accepting this. And we just don't realize how we are. You know, the commandment was there, no other gods before me. And, you know, we've just totally disregarded it. And the history of Mark, doesn't end well. Absolutely uh, valuable comments. Uh, response from Elizabeth Kendall. Uh, thank you very much, Mark. Yes, I agree. There's been a, an incredible lack of interest. I think that might actually be beginning to change. I think we're at the very, very beginning of, of a new wave. I think God is doing a brand new work, actually, amongst uh, uh, amongst Muslims, to witness to Muslims. We're seeing uh, centres like the uh, Arthur Jeffrey Centre at Melbourne School of Theology um, is growing. Um, there's a greater and greater interest in uh, mission to Islam, and that's very new. That has not been there before. This is something very new. So it's the things are just, I believe, just beginning to change. Sometimes it takes a long time for the truth to sink in, and I think one of the big problems. You know, uh, and I relate to this because I often say it's the same as the lack of interest in the persecuted church. A lot of it has to do with just complete ignorance. People are completely unaware of where their freedoms have come from. And this is why I'm so grateful for like the work of, um, Vishal Mangalwadi 
and his book, uh, the book that made your world, that shows how uh, Chris, uh, everything that Christianity has given to Western civilization, uh, and Carl Fazer's uh, new do- new uh, series, uh, Bible study series, which you can get on DVD, uh, Jesus the Game Changer, that does the same thing. Uh, it shows how Jesus. Uh, has been the game changer in so many things, health, education, welfare, uh, everything. But you see, until very recently, most Christians have been unaware of that. I think the church has been very lax for generations. I think we have drifted very comfortably in the mainstream of culture, in a very safe place, a very comfortable place. And what we have failed to do is... Um, pass on uh, these truths of where our freedom comes from and as for history I mean history must be the most neglected thing in in our schools and in our churches so you know we need to start really uh, educating people Um, I think one reason uh, Christians don't want to touch the subject also is because it's really politically incorrect which means you open yourself up for abuse the minute you touch it. And I think people are afraid of that abuse. You know, this narrative of, of uh, Islam is a religion of peace, therefore we can open the floodgates, let, let in as much more Islam as we like, and it will never hurt us. Uh, we'll all be blessed by it. To go against that narrative is to open yourself up to abuse. And Christians... Uh, hear a lot about all sorts of things today and not so much about being prepared to carry the cross. And we need to be cross-bearers again. We need to be intentional. We need to be serious. We need to start educating our young people, educating ourselves, and looking again at what it means to be cross-bearers for the sake of Jesus Christ and for the sake of our country. An important point, thank you so much to Mark from Mackay, that the history of freedom is all Christian. Mm. And until we get back to that and break through some of those ideas of being standoffish because there's a political correctness that says don't speak up about that, uh, we're going to be in trouble. So, uh, Elizabeth, just a few minutes remaining in our conversation, I always love to close out our conversations with a focus on prayer. And we've been talking about the nation of Indonesia. We've been talking about the way that the rules, the laws, become weapons that Islam uses. We've been talking about an election next year, uh, which may well see the slide of Indonesia under Islamic control. Uh, Let me ask you, though, about the Christian church in Indonesia, because I know that people will be surprised when we say that the Christian church in Indonesia is the same size as the population of all Australia, around about 25 million Christians. And they'd be a little, you know, they'd be pretty uh, solidly uh, strong Christians too. What are your thoughts about how Christians respond uh, with their uh, changes in Indonesia and how we might be supportive of brothers and sisters who may be under this movement towards Islamic control? Well, Christians in Indonesia have been under a fair bit of pressure for quite some time. So um, in the 1990s, there was a, a government program put in place to Islamize the majority Christian regions of eastern Indonesia. So Sulawesi, uh, Ambon, uh, West Papua, 
the West Papuans, you know, they are now a minority in their own country. So the West Papuans are looking at a situation where they their island has been deliberately flooded by Javanese Muslims at the behest of the government and facilitated by the military. So this could have a big impact on uh, on people like the West Papuans, on the Christians of Sulawesi. Uh, they're about... Uh, the, and the Moluccas is probably 50-50 through those regions. But in, in areas like Java, where Christians are a much smaller minority, maybe 2% uh, amongst Javanese Muslims, um, they've been under real pressure for a long time. There have been um, fundamentalist Muslims wanting to bring in these Sharia bylaws, so forcing Sharia at, at the district level, saying you cannot have a church unless you can get you know, um, uh, so many signatures from the community and it's virtually makes it impossible. And, and if you can kill, if Muslims can collect signatures, they can have churches closed down. So there's been a lot of pressure on the church in Java. Uh, there's often a lot of pressure then directed against the Chinese because many of the Christians are Chinese or Bataks. And, um, so they've been under pressure for quite some time. And there's a high likelihood that after the next election, if, uh, no matter who wins the next election, I think the Islamists will find themselves even more empowered. And what they are going to do is they will start making more demands. And I think this is a real threat, uh, especially for those, uh, minor, very small minority Muslims, uh, on Java. In West Java, which has always been a hotbed of fundamentalist, uh, of fundamentalist Islam. And they're going to need our prayers. They're going to need our prayers for, uh, protection, for great spiritual wisdom, for insight, that they will know how to navigate the, the change, that they will know how to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves, so that they can keep themselves out of trouble to their best of their ability, but so that they can respond with grace, uh, in a way that honors the Lord and that we can pray that God will redeem this situation so that, so that many Indonesians will actually say, Hey, we don't actually want to be Islamized. We don't actually want this. And maybe, maybe the uh, Islamists will overplay their hand and that God can redeem this situation for his glory, for, for turning back the battle in Indonesia. Well, Elizabeth Kendall, as always, just such valuable insights to be sharing those with listeners. And I know that listeners will want to find out more. And as you say, sometimes we're ignorant about these things. And the way you become less ignorant is to read a little more deeply about the issues as they are unfolding. And I know that you have some uh, wonderful insights, uh, particularly when people go on to your website at elizabethkendall.com, elizabethkendall.com. And let me just mention, too, the couple of books that you've written which speak very deeply. And for people who want a little bit uh, deeper read on some of the issues that are facing the whole world, not just Indonesia, and how they even might relate to our Western context here in Australia, Turn Back the Battle, Isaiah Speaks to Christians Today, and the other book, your most recent, After Saturday Comes Sunday, Understanding the Christian Crisis in the Middle East. Elizabeth Kendall, uh, just great insights today and wonderful to have you face-to-face in the studio. My absolute privilege to be here on your territory here in Victoria and broadcasting live as we are in Melbourne. Elizabeth, thank you so much for taking some time to share your thoughts with us today on 2020. Thank you, Neil. 
Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.